Hi, Stella. Hi, Sasha. So we are returning to a subject today that uh, we recorded this conversation with Dr. James Cantor in 2022. We covered some unbelievably fascinating topics. He kind of told us about how he became a sex researcher, trying to understand his own background as a gay man. He talked about meeting Dr. Blanchard and being one of the first people to examine um, the, the lives and minds of autogynophiles and pedophiles. He talked about how activism has changed. We discussed the way scientists classify things in terms of tech, uh, taxonomy. And um, we talked about also, you know, a program in Germany that aims to reduce offending by pedophiles. We talked about recidivism rates and we covered such a broad range of absolutely fascinating topics. But we decided not to release it during the Pioneers series when it was recorded. And there was a reason why. Yeah. And the reason was primarily because of me, because I suppose I was very proud of the, the Pioneer series. It was your idea, Sasha, and it, it was an amazing series. I felt it was one of the proudest parts of my work in gender was around this Pioneer series. And we were basically lifting up all sorts of different people's views, people's research, the people who were there decades ago. And just to hear what have they got to say now they're decades in the, in the world, because so many of us are only three, eight, five years in this world. And at the time, during the Pioneers, when that was going out, um, Genspect was about eight or nine months old, and we were suffering an onslaught of extraordinary attacks. And it wasn't from a lot of people, but it was relentless. And it was a, a small number of incredibly vocal, incredibly extreme um, people were, were really, really attacking um, both myself and Genspect. And funnily enough, there was one throwaway line in the Pioneer series um, uh, that uh, I think it was Mike Bailey made that they, they kind of completely zeroed in on and they, 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 they took it out of context and they ran with it and it, it was very, very distressing. And it really felt like we were in a fragile position. It felt like we hadn't earned our stripes and people didn't really understand who we were and what we stood for. I think now it's a year, it's a, over a year later, I think the Pioneer series has, has earned its kind of its worth. Like people know that it's a, it's, a, it's a good series, that of course we don't agree with everything that's said. We don't even try to agree with the, everything that's said. Mm -hmm. That's not what we're trying to do. We're just trying to lift up different experts in the field and what they might say in any given uh, uh, context and what the research says. And at the time I contacted you saying we can't put out James Cantor. It's too fragile at the moment. It's too histrionic. It's too distressing. It's too, uh, it's really, really heightened. And uh, of course, this is social media. And honestly, like if you stand out of social media, it's a lot less heightened. So we made that decision. It always stuck in my mind that uh, I would never want to a bow to a mob. And also, I don't ever want to be part of something that's stifling really important um, uh, work. And mm -hmm. I do believe James Cantor, I know he uh, has some un unpalatable ideas, but I think he's, he's a brilliant researcher and I think we have to give respect to the work and we have to think about sometimes we have to think about unpalatable ideas if we're really going to have a deep understanding of any given subject so it was always irking me that we had as such put this by and I, I always felt I owed it to, to 
to James Cantor that one day we have to bring this episode out. And so we're finally bringing this episode out a a full 14 months later, but we're bringing it out now. And I'm I'm really glad we are nervous, but really glad. Yeah. You know, I, I listened to the interview again. And first of all, I think James Cantor is an amazing researcher. He's a brilliant mind. And when I was re-listening to it, first of all, after the heat of all of that controversy mm. has died down, I'm in a very different place now. Um, I listened to it again and I, I thought, you know, what I admire so much about Dr. Cantor is he has such care about precision of language. He makes sure that we use words very, very accurately. And he refuses to make leaps of logic based purely on emotion. And when I think about the the point of our podcast series and the point of our work is that we, we fundamentally believe sometimes a statement or a stimulus or an experience can bring up a feeling in us. But the point is that we need to be able to examine the statement or the stimulus or the experience in a calm, rational, objective way as best as we can, because sometimes our initial gut reaction is going to lead us in an an unhealthy direction. And frankly, I mean, after kind of exploring what the affirmative care model is, which we oppose pretty vehemently, it's based on, I want to make sure that I honor everybody's feelings all the time, 100%, no matter what. So I actually really appreciate Dr. Cantor's willingness to say, no, we can't be led astray by our emotions. We have to really try and understand the outcomes. And, you know, as anyone listening will hear, Dr. Cantor is very concerned with people's well-being and reducing instances of offending from people who are pedophiles and making sure to keep anybody who might be at risk um, from experiencing that abuse on a, a large scale. So he's, he's an advocate for victims and he is very careful in the way he lays out his arguments. And I, I really would encourage listeners to kind of notice that in themselves, like what feelings are coming up and can I stay objective and can I really hear what Dr. Cantor is saying? And of course you can agree or disagree as as we often invite people to do. Talk talk to people that you don't agree with, listen to interviews, even if you don't agree. So, yeah. Yeah, I think it's very important that if research is emerges that we don't want to hear, in a way, you can live like that, but sometimes, if it's very important, sometimes we have to kind of countenance the fact that some of the research mightn't suit us. It doesn't suit our worldview. And um, James Cantor is one of those researchers who just doesn't work like that. He's just it's about the research. Now, you could argue, I would personally argue a lot about research. I think it's filled with issues, but that's not the point of, you know, that we still shouldn't suppress research. We should talk about it, think about it, discuss it. And if we don't agree, we should talk about it more and think about it more and discuss it more and not censor it and not bring it down. And that's why I think it's so important that we 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 um, give this opportunity to kind of discuss the important research, uh, kind of trying to reduce the rate of of um, paedophilia in his research, like he has some good, interesting ideas, certainly, and to hopefully um, that we come out of it better informed and probably realizing it's tricky. It's really, really tricky. 
and mm -hmm. we don't know how to handle that in society. Yeah. We'll say a little bit more about Dr. James Cantor. He's a clinical psychologist and sexual behavior scientist. For the past 20 years, he's been studying the nature and causes of sexual interests from relatively familiar ones, such as heterosexuality, homosexuality, transsexuality, and asexuality, to rare and exotic phenomena, including vorarephilia, which is sexual fantasies of being swallowed, and furries, people who have sex while dressed or cross-dressed as animals. The most widely discussed of his findings has been his research during using neuroimaging and other techniques to isolate the causes of pedophilia and hebephilia, which is the sexual preference for prepubescent and pubescent children. His team's results have been published in the highest impact journals of psychology, including Psychological Bulletin, Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology, and the Journal of Abnormal Psychology. Dr. Cantor regularly appears in the media internationally to discuss how society can better apply science to prevent sexual abuse and provide more ethical and effective treatment for people with atypical, atypical sexual interests. Interviews with him have appeared in CNN, NPR, The New York Times, and on Dan Savage's Savage Love podcast. Dr. Cantor is currently the director of the Toronto Sexuality Center and is the past editor of Sexual Abuse, a top research journal in the field and the official journal for the Association of the Treatment of Sexual Abusers. For updates and downloads, please visit his website, which we'll include in the notes, Doctor. Uh, it's www.jamescantor.org or follow him on Twitter at, at James Cantor PhD. So here is our um, uh, older, but still incredibly relevant an interesting conversation with Dr. James Cantor. Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Through in-depth interviews, personal stories, and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture. And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self. This is the thinking person's take on gender. Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How's it going today? It's going very well. As we get deeper and deeper into our Pioneer series, I feel really engaged with this. I feel really like we're actually following a golden thread of knowledge and we're really getting to hear people that I just don't think have been heard in, in the long form. We see their studies, but we don't hear their thoughts and reflections. And so I'm very excited by our guest today. Dr. James Cantor, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. So can I just say, I first came across you uh, when uh, I, I was studying, as we all are in this gender world, I was studying desistance because I had my own experience of desistance as a child. And I came across the most valuable document, which was your analysis of uh, desistance. And we might get into that mm. a little bit later, but it was the most helpful document for anybody who was studying it from, I don't know, 2016 to 2018, 2019. We were almost... That was the kind of North Star of desistance, that we could look at this document where all the studies of children who had desisted and all the studies of gender dysphoria and children had been collected and you'd kind of provided us with this information. So thank you. And that's how you um, first, yeah, that's how you first came across my, um, I suppose, my, my, my 
that's how I first noticed you. But would you like to tell us how you first got into this whole field? Uh, goodness. Let's see. Way back when I was an itty-bitty little gay kid, uh, I was figuring out that, oh my God, I'm an itty-bitty little gay kid. <laughs> uh, and so, uh, just my natural personality, I'm just a curious kind of... I was just, how does anything work? And, you know, as a, you know, figure gay, I, I was born in the 60s, so I was just figuring out that I was gay at a really, really tough time. Mm. Uh, I mean, you know, it, there was no, it, we didn't even have the language. There was no such thing as gay marriage. I mean, the idea of gays in the military, uh, mm. uh, uh, gay was still in the DSM, where homosexuality of various terms was, you know, it, it was a much rougher time then. And even as I learned to, you know, develop the skin for dealing with that, you know, that was just when the AIDS era just first started, you know, so that whole world was just as one great big scary. And anyway, but I I really was very lucky. My family, you know, from the get-go was entirely supportive. And uh, as they say, uh, uh, pardon the pun, I got to have a happy ending. (laughs) Uh, But... Just being the nerdy kind of guy that I am, I was just curious. Why was I different? What made me gay to begin with? What, it, what, I just, yeah, very natural questions. I was hardly the first to, uh, to ask them. Uh, so really my plan when I was, uh, uh, when I was young was to become a psychologist and uh, to become a therapist for the gay community exactly the way the therapist helped, uh, helped me uh, me coming out. That was kind of, you know, the basic idea. And again, a pretty common story, certainly for a New York Jew. Now, uh... So as I uh, went through my uh, through my study uh, went through my studies, uh, one of the I have to say it it's not exactly relevant. I just uh, I can't help. But I got into graduate school. I started studying in psychology, and my first talk ever was just on the gay graduate student experience. Again, doing the very same thing that people are still doing today. Only yeah. I was in those days. I was the first one to do it. Well, you know, there had never before been an open like. You know, there were some uh, 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 senior. Professionals who were established, but for you know at this point a kid to say it was uh, right. And I actually even started the first committees on uh, uh, for LGB uh, 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 graduate students in psychology at the time. Anyway, so I gave my first talk, and in the audience was my now husband of thirty years, Whoa. and that's how and that's how we met. Oh, James! Oh my goodness! Right. So, so there, is he a psychology student as well, or a graduate graduate yep. student? Wow, yep. so, uh, so right, it, it's pretty so pretty magical, uh, and <laughs> it's only in retrospect that I said, "Oh, this is clever of me. I'm stalking the audience. <laughs> it's going to be filled with lots of gay men my age, interested in the same thing." And the conference that year was in San Francisco. <clears throat> oh, there you go. Yeah, no, I, 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 uh, on the way, I was thinking, you know, if I don't meet someone here, it's not going to happen. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> uh, 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 so, uh, as I said, so that, that really was the start. We coordinated our uh, applications. I had to, you know, oh. go from a master's into a PhD program. We both got, uh, and so then both at, uh, uh, at McGill, and that's how I came to Canada. Oh, it sounds okay. like a little movie. It, uh, I, it, it really, I, again, you know, for its day, it, it, it was a little bit more out of the ordinary than it is yeah. uh, than it is today, but it was... Yeah, uh, today, uh, that's like the most uh, kind of home home comforting like vanilla story that you can yeah. imagine but i'm sure back then it was 
a big it, deal. It, uh, it, it was also, uh, it's nice to have a story that you can toast to in public and that your parents and pa- grandparents yeah. can pass on as opposed to the we met on Grinder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. True. Not that there's yeah. anything wrong with that. <laughs> no. no. And, and, of course, this is many years before before uh, Grinder. Uh, and I imagine this uh, old was, fashioned in that sense. I yeah. imagine this was in the 80s, the height of the AIDS epidemic type time, just judging by when you were born. Uh, we met in 1991, and it was indeed at the uh, at the height yeah. uh, of it. I, I, you know, I would have been uh, right. I was 25 when we met, and mm-hmm. it was indeed at its worst. Mm-hmm. And it also, I don't want to say derailed. It's, it, it, it's complicated, but it uh, impacted. Now, flipping to the uh, to the scientific part, not only all of us in the. Uh, uh, in the world, but also the science. All of sex research was mm. HIV prevention. Kathunk. You know, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, uh, that was all the money was diverted to that, you know, slow start, you know, the Reagan era, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but then, but sex research itself, every sex researcher, it was, uh, from the point of view of many, money was gun- just getting uh, 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 given away. Uh, the running joke was nobody ever turned down an AIDS proposal. That's what was wow. going on. Yeah. In, uh, it's like uh, what's right. happening now with trans and gender identity research. Like, it seems No, similar. there is no trans and identity research. That's exactly the problem. Okay. Nobody's proposing any research. They're just proposing mottos. Yeah. Well, I the, suppose the, I'm the, thinking the, about the advocacy groups being able to kind of elicit large donations. And there's a proliferation of advocacy groups, which is different from research, of course. I'm just thinking about how, I guess, the, the issue of the time is really where all of the energy and attention goes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I hesitate to make the comparison. Okay. Because in those days, a group meant a group. Physically mm. in a room together, oh, people yeah. talking under their real names, you had to go out and do something. Yeah. You couldn't Google a group, click on two things, call yourself a member, and everything was about number of likes and who knows how many of these are, bo- of, of these are yeah. bots. I mean, those were people, you know, as I say, on real doorsteps, knocking on real doors, putting themselves in real harm's way. Yeah, Unlike, you, you couldn't do it anonymous yeah. like, like, yeah. like this now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it, right, then it was mm-hmm. activists had to be active. Today, yeah. do I... Right, I, it's not it's like keyboard activism. Anonymous yeah. with a picture of uh, of a cartoon as your ID photo. That that's not activism. But, you know, true. The, the... So true. Um, I know that you said that you kind of got into it to study how how was I produced, basically your kind of thing. Oh goodness, yeah. I got lost on my husband. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, that's so, a good sign, uh, I think. <laughs> the, uh, um, the, well, that depends on uh, on your point of view. You know, when, when, once uh, uh, men even more than women, once we get north of fifty, our, our members aren't quite what uh, uh, what they were. <laughs> Uh, and I have become. I, it's I very very again for a science minded purpose uh, a person. This is this is rough. I really had to uh, reorganize myself and get much much better at note taking. Hmm. Uh, so uh, right, graduate school met my husband, da, 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 and the plan again was I was just going to become a you know gay therapist to, to my peeps to uh, to mm-hmm. the gay community. Uh, uh, in those days, the T hadn't yet been uh, been added. 
Uh, and part of standard training for a PhD in clinical psychology is, of course, your uh, year internship. Uh, and there are very few sex-oriented such internships anywhere. One of them happened to be at the then Clark Institute of Psychiatry that had both a, 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 a gender clinic for people who were, uh, the official diagnostic term then was still transsexualism. Uh, uh, and then uh, they also had an other half, which was to work with sex offenders that I knew absolutely positively nothing about, you know, so, but you needed two halves. So the half I was there for was, you know, to train to be able to work with a T in GLBT that, you know, that was my goal. But the other half, again, I needed another half and this was sex related. So here we go. Uh, well, so uh, hmm. now in that uh, uh, other half was Ray Blanchard doing research on pedophiles, and he was just about to start on some studies on uh, brain functioning pedophile, uh, in pedophiles. Uh, he wanted to study uh, uh, IQ and, uh, uh, and some basic you know, brain functional measures. By sheer coincidence... Uh, I actually had started in computer science before I came out, and part of blah, 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 coming out is when I switched to psychology. But as part of that switch, I was employed for two years as a research assistant in a neuropsychology lab where I was trained in giving IQ tests and cognitive assessments. So I had exactly the background that Blanchard needed. I was the missing piece for him to pull off this project to study the cognitive functioning in the brains of pedophiles. Right place, right time. It was interesting, you know, he, he was proposing whatever project and for the back of the room I said, but what about if, ding, well, and da, 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 10 years later we're getting, or I'm getting by then, you know, our first grants to, you know, pursue that with more studies, larger groups, and then the MRI studies to answer. What I now learned was the bigger question where I used to be wondering, essentially just about me, what made me different, you know, and that became the bigger question, what makes gay people different? And then that was now, it was running into uh, transsexuals and pedophiles and people with, you know, a much broader range of atypical sexualities gave mm -hmm. me, of course, now the general question. What makes anybody into whatever they're into? And so now all of the other questions are just specific instances of the big question. How does the brain know what to be attracted to in the first place? Well, that's a bit of a leap, I would have thought, because some people would say, well, hang on, being gay is, isn't, isn't comparable to, let's say, um, you know, paedophile or, or, or transsexual. That You're comparing apples and oranges here. I would think people would say that. That's, uh, that's an, uh, oh, and uh, I'm sure people, uh, uh, I'm very, very sure that people do, and that's a natural instinct. And when I started this, I would have had exactly the same instinct. Uh, but once one takes oneself out of the picture, the thing that makes it, uh, uh, whatever sexual interest pattern distinct is our reaction to it. How it looks in society, how it fits in, whether it hurts somebody or not, all of which are perfectly legitimate, important social questions. But if you're a scientist, I'm asking about a glob of cells. What proportion of what hormones are in this kind of cell group versus that kind of cell group, and how does that proportion change, influence, whatever comes, whether it fits into society or not, doesn't matter, to, uh, doesn't matter at all to the glob of cells. 
But the moral implications, the ethical implications, the practical implications, the civil rights implications, all of those are perfectly valid. But if this sexual pattern is acceptable versus that one being not acceptable is not going to change, whatever it is in the brain, which parts are relevant, which parts are not relevant to science, that's neutral. It's helpful information knowing what is in the brain versus not, what does change versus not. Again, it is centrally important to the uh, 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 to we as a society managing ourselves, but we can't go backwards. We can't say because we like this one versus that one, this one therefore is in the brain versus not that one. That's not how it works. But who's to say it's in the brain? That's, that's you. I, I'm not convinced it's in the brain. Oh, again, perfectly, perfectly legitimate question. And that is exactly the question that, uh, that got me uh, onto this. Now, of course, answering that question has been a you know, 20 long, 20 year long chunk of my career and a fascinating, fascinating question. Now, uh, it's kind of funny uh, how things have shifted over the course of that time. When I was, uh, when I started at this in the uh, 80s, 1980s, 1990s, uh, was the height of what then was mostly being called social constructionism. Mm -hmm. The, uh, The people with whom I was most unpopular then, or the controversial questions I was talking about then, were, you know, was gay in the brain or not? You know, in the early research uh, on that, again, you know, in one of the uh, best-known studies were a series by Simon LeVay, who start, you know, first started identifying di- differences, in, uh, uh, as I say, in, in these small cell groups, which led to m- more and more research. The best of which is, again, happens to be from uh, Ray Blanchard demonstrating the bottom line uh, is that uh, male sexual orientation, so homosexuality it, uh, specifically in... Uh, uh, in biological males, it appears to be a side effect of the immune response of his mother while he's in the womb. It's in the brain, it's inborn, but it's not a gene. It's not a gene that gets passed generation from generation. Any gene that gets passed is whatever atypicality or eccentricity it is of the mother's immune system. What appears to be genetic is the ability to produce gay children is what gets passed on, not the gayness itself. As I say, absolutely fascinating, fascinating line uh, line of research. Uh, So when I started on this, the big debate was nature-nurture. And for sexual orientation, again, it, these were the big debates and people were, uh, uh, it was important for people to know because it felt like it was uh, uh, so much of the gay rights agenda mm-hmm, of that time mm-hmm. depended on it. And it did. You know, there, there was the uh, sometimes implicit, sometimes explicit uh, assumption that if it's built in, you know, then we have to treat it like that forces us to treat it as acceptable. Now, if you focus on that, that argument isn't really true. Correct. I mean, it. You know, there are many situations in which you know those kinds of things do follow, but really it follows because it's our sympathy, it's our emotions that do. You know, we imagine ourselves: what if I were born that way? What would I want? So it it's related, but you know, a person's choices are a person's choices. What they want to do and their motivation for it. Uh, what we as a society can't enforce mind reading you know we can't ban a thought 
we require to regulate people to regulate their own behavior according to what you know poses potential harm to others perfectly legitimate okay so this was these were the social constructionist days and in those days the lesbian community had a bit of trouble with me i was what they called a biological essentialist because the evidence was showing that at least male homosexuality did appear to be this innate brain thing. Now, I'm very specific to say gay men and male homosexuality because for women, it's way more complex as it very often is. Mm -hmm. So when you tell gay men, you know, you were born like this, most gay men, yeah, I know. It just, as I say, from the get-go, there was no avoiding it. But for so many women... Sexual attraction is not just physical. It's a big, holistic, how do I feel about them, expectations for the future, what will my parents think, what will my friends think of me? You know, it, it's this whole great big integrated ball of wax. So if there's something, you know, unusual or atypical about the physical attraction piece, it's just one piece of the bigger picture. So for women, you know, for lesbians, the idea that you're born like this... That doesn't feel true to a lot of lesbians the way it feels true to a lot of gay men. It, it does, and so that that became a big debate at mm, that time. It it does feel like a very male framework. That I've said it before, but I'll say it again for the hell of it. That it feels like a very male framework. This homosexuality, uh, heterosexuality, bisexuality get into your categories, off you go, and it just feels very male to me. And it's like, yeah, it's quite obvious that men constructed that framework. And I don't think it sings to women as, as a concept, if you follow me. Uh, I agree with your bottom line, is that it doesn't ring true for men and women in the same, in the same way. It's, uh, male sexuality is not the op- equal and opposite uh, uh, component to female sexuality. They're, they're yeah. Yeah. strongly related, but not equal opposite mm-hmm. powers. It's, it's, the, it's even not a binary. Think- yeah, <laughs> yeah, correct. And to, uh, but the part where I hesitate is I have no idea what a male theory is, what a female theory is. It's I, and, <laughs> oh, yeah. and I always he- yeah. and I hesitate to ascribe individual att- uh, intention or desire to what's you know a mass of people, you know, a cultural right. Which is not to say they don't influence each other, but you know it doesn't have an intent like a person has. And uh, an agenda. There's something you jumped at, and I just want to go back because I, I, I'm very aware that you're very controversial in some circles. So I'll probably be a little bit more pedantic than usual because what I want out of this hour is that everybody feels that they hear what you have to say. If you follow me, so that's quite clear what, about what you have to say, and you can yeah. go fast. And I don't think that serves for this because it's so important that we get things crystal, if at all possible. It seemed to me that you kind of lumped it, lumped in homosexuality with paraphilias. And I'm like oh, kind of going, mm-hmm. hang on a second, can we just go back to that? Because why would you? Are these not two different things? Yeah, it, the question that came up for me thinking about that is like, compared to what, right? It's almost a postmodern question because I'm like, well, compared to straight couples, I suppose all of these things are an anomaly to some degree. But I'm really curious about like, like Stella saying, how did you decide what kinds of sexual proclivities would get lumped together in the way you think about this? Basic, basic science. I mean, 
I didn't do and have no need to do anything outside the pretty routine scientific method. We start with a null hypothesis. Okay. Period. No exceptions. The null hypothesis is there are no differences until you show me that there are. Okay. That means everything gets lumped together. Period. All of it. And it doesn't matter how anybody feels about it, if anybody's offended about being, you know, associated with it. This is just basic scientific method. Because if I start with this group is different from that group, there's no way to go backwards. There's no way to prove that they're the same. We start with the theory that they are the same and only separate them when the evidence shows or that the evidence demands the only way to explain the evidence is to show that they are different groups. Even though we feel differently about these groups here in society, and it's perfectly fine that we do, that doesn't automatically mean that there's something in the brain, that, that they have different things in the brain. That's, as we call it, an have? empirical you question. What do they have? You said it was a blob of cells. Oh, 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 hang on, sorry, hang on. Oh, no, no, no. no. Uh, the one thing, the uh, established already scientific principle is that, well, why don't we lump the regular everyday sexual people in with the atypical sexualities that uh, that is uh, which is to say why mm -hmm. am i starting with those two groups why isn't just one great big group of human or male mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh and that uh, that is evolution it's the regular everyday attracted to the opposite sex of reproductive range well that's what enables uh, that's what evolution would select for okay so we only have a question when, well, then how do we have the presence of these things that Got don't? It. Got right, it. so we only so have... Anything a right, so anything that's unrelated to sexual reproduction would Anything go, that evolution wouldn't select wouldn't, okay, for wouldn't select becomes for. a question. Right, Got so it. if, it's, if evolution isn't the thing that's maintaining the existence of Got these it. things, then okay. what is? And so mm -hmm. we start with a one great big group of what's... Right, so we start with a question... What And now we can ask whatever question we want. And now it's, where are the lines? What, and the real question is, ultimately, what goes with what? Which of the, you know, which of these are meaningful clusters? Uh, which of these are meaningful clusters? Mm -hmm. Is it gay versus everybody else? Is it everybody else is their own thing and they're all completely, inde uh, completely independent? Or there's something, or do they go together, you know, in certain clusters, and we have a limited number of clusters and subclusters. Again, this is, to a scientist, this is the science of taxonomy. Okay. And it's well established, and it is exactly the same thing, exactly the same kind of procedures a scientist would use to classify, pick your phenomenon on the planet. Bacteria, birds, uh -huh. rock strata. Sure. We okay. know things are similar or different if we can detect reliable differences that we can replicate to show so, that, ah, this began a different way and it's going to lead to something different and it responds differently to different kinds of treatment. If it fits those criteria, then that's a meaningful way to separate these things. And if you saw brain scans, are you saying that you can say that you know, a certain person is homosexual or a certain per Are you saying that it is recognizable in a brain scan? No, it's not that precise. Thank God. Because <laughs> that oh, would be and, news to me. <laughs> if you oh, have. yeah, no, and, and none of this, uh, 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 and that's not a secret. It, it's, we, uh, uh, we, and again, this is how behavioral science and epidemiological science uh, works. We look for patterns in large groups. Okay. 
So if, uh, uh, and one of my favorite examples is to just use, you know, average height of men and women. Mm -hmm. And right, if I just said men are taller than women, nobody would bat an eye. But if I say, here's a person five foot six, male or female, I don't know, Mm -hmm. could go either way. Right, you know, I could assign percentages, 70% this way, 30 the other, but it's just, right, the differences aren't large enough really to be able to say anything about one person, even though I can say something very, very reliable about groups of people. So we've got. So same with the, the brain scans. It gives me clues as to where these things are coming from and what goes with uh, what goes with uh, what. But they're not at the level where I can take a brain scan and from that tell right. what a, a person is attracted to what. Now, given all of that, what the yes. brain research has shown that homosexuality is different from heterosexuality in a different way than pedophiles are different from non-pedophiles. So these are different axes. So you can, uh, it, it's like you have a, uh, a sex axis, you're attracted to male versus female, and an age axis. You're, you, well, that's more of a, a bell curve. You're attracted to reproductive age versus under reproductive age, the pedophiles and so on. And there does exist at the other end, the gerontophiles. They're attracted to older than reproductive uh, age. So as I say, they're two independent axes, and both of those axes seem to be represented in the brain. The important part for society actually is the axis that people don't talk about, which is essentially the stuff in the brain that leads to antisociality, uh-huh. psychopathy, right, violence, uh, inability to exhibit self-control. I mean, those are the things that are, right, dangerous. Now, that's the stuff, yeah, if we could detect that early, if we could, you know, find a way to treat that, if we could, you know, early, early detection, yep, they're the dangerous ones. But people, uh, now, when there is such a person, they're going to go rob, steal, hurt, whoever it is they want to rob, steal, hurt. If that person's a regular, everyday heterosexual man, yeah, that kind of person is more likely to be a rapist. If he's attracted to children, well, that's the kind. He's more more likely to uh, uh, to hurt a kid. But the problem isn't the pedophilia per se, although of course such situations right pull it a stronger. The prob the brain problem is that antisocial, you know, psychopathic. Right, that's the axis we want to go for. The you know who he picks as victim. Eh, is kind of secondary. If we could prevent him from looking for a victim whom he chooses kind of becomes moot. I want to ask you about that. I was kind of doing some reading from from authors who might take a different perspective than you do. And, yep. and one author said that um, based on her un- understanding, she was also a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And she was mm-hmm. saying that in her understanding, most... Um, pedophiles who do act out against children don't realize that they are grooming a victim and the way they see it is they're courting a potential partner and i'm wondering if you can share more about that i mean i'd love to read more research on that idea but what's your experience what do you know about that oh goodness each of those is a different question Okay. Uh, the situation that she describes absolutely positively exists. Uh, grooming and even, you know, and in the research we even use that, uh, uh, that term. Such situations do indeed uh, uh, exist uh, and need to be dealt with, you know, uh, of course, uh, appropriately. Uh, 
where I'm hesitating is the most. Okay. Because, right, we don't have a... It's not like we can conduct a survey and everybody's going to tell us and we can say, ah, aha, see, it was 23% of the... We have no idea what most is because so many of these cases go entirely unreported altogether. Right. So as I say, uh, so her experience, yeah, no, that that is a... uh, 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 that is as unfortunate as it is, that's not an uncommon experience. Yeah. But if we assume that her experience is the general experience or the, the cross-cutting experience, and that's the only situation that we're aiming our prevention methods at, we're going to be missing all of the other, you know, unfortunate mm-hmm. in our own ways kind of scenarios. So we need to be prepared and, right, work with hers but when we start, and people do this all the time, and I can't blame them. If I had their experiences, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if I had the same reactions uh, they do. A lot of people walk in with, a, 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 you know, their set of experiences, which they're trying to, you know, make sense of, yeah. prevent other people from going through, you know, and they need their supports, and they gather around themselves other people who have been through similar stories, which makes sense, so they have that feeling that that's the majority case you know that's part of their trying to normalize their own experience heal and move on as i say that not crazy and i i wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if i uh if i were in did a similar thing if i were in their shoes but we have no evidence that it's most we need to simultaneously prepare for those bro- grooming kinds of situations and these others you know and, what are the others you know, like what are the for, others uh the of the case of the cases that become known yeah interestingly only about a third of actual sexual child sexual abuse cases are committed by actual pedophiles two-thirds of the cases the majority of sex abuse cases come inside the family from somebody who actually a man typically, who actually prefers adults as sex partners but uses the kid as a surrogate because an adult isn't available to him for whatever reasons. So that's going back to your antisocial kind of uh, behavior, the lack of self-control being the problem. It's, again, yes and no. Uh, a, per- a person with... Uh, uh, the general lack of self-control, this is only one of a long line of behaviors. They also have trouble with, you know, whatever substances and gambling and spending. And, and this is just one, and, and this is one among them. And empathy, maybe. For so, yeah. uh, all, all of those are possible. Uh, I hesitate... Each of the adjectives that you I, I asked about, all perfectly logical but all trying to look for evidence of evil in this person. I do not blame you. That is the perfect natural response. And there does exist a chunk of these people for whom the word evil, you know, really is a, 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 a meaningful word. But if we start adding the less comfortable ideas, desperate, rejected, feeling unlovable, feeling that there's no alternative because of who knows what's... Again, I'm not exactly trying to evoke sympathy, oh, these poor dears, 
But if we want these people to change their behaviors, we have to understand these people, how they see themselves. And could I interject? And only start there and then bring them to a more realistic assessment of what's going on. Um, I have seen you, you're writing that, that you basically said it is when they are desperate is when they they, they carry out these, these acts. That's humans. It's when humans feel the most desperate is when we're going to do the most desperate things. We need to, right, and all we're doing is make, well, now we're switching to the genuine pedophiles. The Mm. genuine pedophiles are in a different situation, emotionally, cognitively, sexually, than uh, the genuine pedophiles, you know, they're not using a kid as a surrogate. And again, this is one of the parts that's hard for a non-pedophile to understand. They just because their attraction pattern is about kids, their emotional range is the same as everybody else's. They get crushes. They experience love. They have a need, a craving to feel loved from the person that they feel attracted to. Now, again, my experience growing up gay does not compare to the you know, it was hard enough just getting a crush on, you know, whatever fifth grade kid was sitting in front of me when I was just, you know, in puberty, never mind trying to hide that. Now we're asking these people to hide this from every person they ever meet, no exceptions their entire life. We want them to succeed, right, at, we want, right, to me the only logical thing is we'll come in where we can whatever it takes. For some people, it's sex drive reducing medication. For some people, it's just venting for, you know, an hour or once a week just to get it off their chest. For some people, I can imagine, it's just fantasizing in their head about whatever it is they find attractive. Just, as I say, mental imagination. The same way that anybody else masturbates. You know, so it's... Right, so though, so uh, uh, it's only when they have the opportunity to do that that we, right, can make a difference. Otherwise, we just send them underground where they, right, are more likely to feel more desperate and do something desperate. And have you any sort of numbers or percentages on this? Like how many pedophiles do never commit pedophilia, if you follow me? Do we have any sort oh, of Oh, excellent idea? question. Uh, no, there's, there's no realistic way, uh, to measure that kind of a number. Uh, As I say, you know, we can't do a Gallup poll and ask uh, people, okay, how old of a kid are you attracted, blah, 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 and right, we're not going to get a meaningful response that way. We can only ask the backwards question. Mm. Out of the people who come to clinical attention. Right. Right. Out of the people who were caught, you know, and we can test them, we can determine what proportion of the offenders are pedophiles. But we have no way to measure, of the pedophiles, how many become offenders. There's, there's just no way to know that. We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high-quality content for the show. To take an even deeper dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools, and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH, providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, GenSpect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold stories. 
For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a non-profit organisation dedicated to improving long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the conversation. So Dr. Cantor, you said something that I want to go back to. You said, even though there is this sexual attraction pattern, which is very unusual or maybe unusual, well, I don't even know really how to say it. Not, not socially or morally acceptable to most people, okay? But you said the emotional range of these individuals is typical. So my, yeah. my question from that is, I assume the answer is going to be, well, it varies, but do a lot of these individuals recognize that the attraction patterns they have, if acted upon, would cause such devastation to the children victims? Do they realize oh, that? Uh, yeah, or is yeah, it yeah. a total delusion like, oh, this kid is actually really great for me and we should be together? Like, where is the sense of responsibility or vulnerability of the victim i'm curious yep. about that yeah 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 uh, excellent uh, excellent question both of those exist it's the ones who fool themselves into believing that the child has an equivalent emotional experience those are the ones who right we usually find in in forensic environments and have gone through with it because you know they've worked at convincing themselves that this was not a bad thing and, of course, the others exist. People who, you know, uh, let's say, you know, a 12-year-old, at 12 years old, they're getting crushes on other 12-year-olds, you know, just like all of us do. But by uh, where the rest of us, our attractions, you know, age with us for them, they continue being attracted to 12-year-olds as they become 15, 16, 17, and until the mm-hmm. contrast becomes large enough that they realize, uh-oh. Mm-hmm. Right, clam up, isolate themselves, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, so and those people, until relatively recently, we just never heard from. But we have right all kinds of pressure, and they have every reason not uh, to keep it secret uh, to themselves. And it's only relatively recently that the uh, 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 that the the clinical mental health environment has is uh, more uh, trying harder to enable them to come in to get what uh, what support they need. Uh, so as I say, both groups exist, but there's no way to canvas or estimate the size of the population. It, it occurs to me we could ask things like, what percentage of your fantasy life is completely unacceptable? You, you know, we could get around it. We could get s- suggestions. Uh, I have to go after an assumption in that question. To me, if it's a fan, uh, 100% of fantasies are acceptable. They're fantasies. But society... That's what they're for. How, how many of them are societally acceptable to be enacted? You know, you could, you could uh, get that's clever a different with question. the question. Yeah, I, 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 <clears throat> well, um... No, I'm still at... I, I'm still on the first floor. Uh... That whether doing it in the real world is good or not doesn't matter. That's what makes a fantasy a fantasy. It that's what uh, out of again to pick you know any of many many analogies or metaphors. Oh, yeah. uh, 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 guy in uh, in a monogamous relationship. 
Mm-hmm. Right, fantasizing other yeah. women, every okay, one of those okay, counts okay. as cheating. You no, win. Right, no, it's a <laughs> fantasy. That's what <laughs> no, it's I, there for. Oh, I want to beat up, punch, yeah, blow up. Yeah. That's right. It's supposed yeah. to be okay. that. that yes. That's where it belongs. And it's actually clinically useful to leave space for that. In, in a person's mind. I've yeah. seen some evidence of that, like yeah. um, emotion-focused experiential therapy, I think, um, encourages clients in fantasy only to act out. Like if you're angry at somebody, to act out, you know, whatever your fantasy is about that person. And it, at least when I, I remember reading a book about this and the therapist said, what often happens after the acting out is another set of emotions. So for example, if you're, raging at your father and you imagine brutally punching him or beating him up what will happen next in the fantasy is you'll look at him and say oh poor guy i you know he's not really that bad or whatever so i found that fascinating and i had never really thought about it in that way i don't know how this exactly relates to what we're talking about but oh no, no, it, it, it is yeah. dead dead on it is abs it, it is uh and it's a classic conflict in a lot of uh, uh doing therapy is the way through the emotion is through the emotion. Go through the wave, you know, let the anger pick up. You know, mm-hmm. again, it's the best metaphor. The metaphor I use with my own clients the most, again, is we are bags of mostly water, you know, responding to the same four Fs. You know, when we're angry at somebody, you know, our choices are flee or fight. You know, mm-hmm. ancient brain is telling us flee or fight, flee or fight. Th- those are the two. All the rest of the upstairs is to just figure out the best way of fleeing and fighting. Mm-hmm. But the ancient part, you know, the hypothalamus, it doesn't know the difference. Go punch a punching bag. To the lower brain, that counts. You did something. You fought. We're happy. And now you're ready to right. You've done. You've satisfied. You've scratched the itch. You've satisfied the ancient reflex to respond that it actually had nothing to do with whatever the fight was about. Yeah. Oddly, to the emotions, it doesn't matter. To the upstairs cognitive part, mm-hmm. that's one thing. But the raw emotion of it, as I said, running around the block, that, that's why physical exercise is so helpful for so many emotional things. We're yeah. just, right, tricking ancient hunter-gatherer brain into we either flew or uh, 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 fought, right? And so it just tackles the emotional reflex so okay now i can think about it a little bit more uh, more clearly C- could i ask you a few questions that i know a lot of people will want us to ask you and they're, they're difficult oh, I, yeah. I do please these yeah. are indeed uh, these are indeed complicated yeah. issues and oh. it's only by you know being born a vulcan that i can process them now in a relatively objective way i know <laughs> for for many people uh people think that it was absolutely unacceptable um, that you said a tweet, I think it was 2018, along the lines mm. of the P should be in the LGBTQ acronym. And it was incredibly offensive to an awful lot of people. I don't yeah. get it. I, I, I don't understand why you think that. I kind of think, what is that? And what are you thinking? So, yeah, could you tell us? Oh, God, I, 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 happy to. And uh, uh, <laughs> it's almost to the point where, where I want to call that tweet, that tweet. Uh, now, as you might imagine, that was inside of a, uh, inside of a thread, inside of a discussion and a context. Now, my disappointment in how people, are, or at least 
the people who kind of use that tweet for for their own you know attention seeking purposes my disappointment is that nobody actually picked me up on my question which is the second half of uh, of that tweet which is to point out to people that to do anything else violates the principles that gives the rest of us in LGBTQ our rights. What people have not figured out is, again, in the context of that general thread of, you know, amongst all the uh, uh, atypical sexualities, uh, what are the basic principles that give us our rights? Okay, let's identify those principles and now and now apply them equally, fairly, and the same across all of the atypical sexualities. Now, people kind of grab onto pedophile because it's the most evocative, it, you know, it, it springs the most emotion, so it gets the most retweets, so that's what everybody hears. But of course, I'm about all the atypical sexualities. So when I talk about, you know, who has what kind of rights, I'm going LGBTTQQI, a gynandromorphophilia, asexuality, long strings and lists of sexual interest patterns that people have never heard of, and we're just putting pedophile at the end of the list because it's the toughest one to deal with. But if we can tackle that toughest one, all of the others fall into place. So as I say, really my question is, someone please articulate how you decide who gets into the alphabet. And if you can't tell me, then it's just a popularity contest, which is exactly why we needed this group to begin with, because we were fighting the popularity contest. But you're presupposing that this is a sexuality, and I still... I'm not even remotely convinced that it is. I would have thought it's a, a developed disorder. And, you know, your, your sexual attraction, I would say. Yep. Okay, people seem to be... And I buy your theory about the male homosexuality and female yep. seems more nebulous. I get all that. But I'm like, I, 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 don't, I don't buy this idea that we're born with a paraphilia, any paraphilia. And I was very interested when Ray Blanchard said... It's something along the lines of mm. an erotic mislearning, an inability to correct an erotic fixation that would be considered societally unacceptable. He said something along those lines that we were born with. Do you understand me? He said that we're born with proclivities and yeah. environmental stressors can either exacerbate or perhaps... Yeah. Um, inoculate the person from exhibiting those proclivities. And I th I th I've been thinking about this too. Um, but I guess to, to add on to Stella's question, wh why does everything need to be in the acronym? And what does that have to do with rights per se? Like, don't all human beings, just by the virtue of being born in a certain country, have the rights of that particular country? Like, why does... Yeah, because I think why what isn't, about pedophilia why needs to be in LGBT yeah. in oh. order to ensure what rights, like housing rights, can, or can I, what rights are we talking about? And can I add in why didn't you say H for heterosexuality or HE or something, <laughs> and why didn't you say A for autogynephilia? Like if if that's where you were going, I've, mm. yes, 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 you're seeing it exactly. How do we decide? What does it mean to be in that list? All of those are legitimate questions, but nobody 
right, everybody is in the, oh my God, no, only the people I like are in the list, not the people who make me uncomfortable. Well, to me, that's the height of hypocrisy. You're in the list according to who's comfortable? Well, if that were true, there'd be no list at all. Well, so if it's not about comfort, what is it? Is it about, you know, actually what we're going to put in law? Well, then why is there a queue? Who is this exactly? Who, what, who's in queue who's not already included? If being in the list means we all get the same civil rights, then what does it mean to have T in there with L, even though these two groups are at war with each other? Do, do Bs need to be there? Well, if it's about behavior, well, being B isn't relevant to that. It's just they're there because they're already either half L or half G. And B. as I say, it's I'm asking, does, or at least I'm pointing out that this is a slogan. What does it mean to be here? If you can't tell me what, in an objective way, who's in or out, it's either everybody who's just atypical and needs help in living their atypical life in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah. But well, then we need to include, you, then they should be included in that. Your acronym was basically a takedown. Uh, it was a provocative takedown of the concept of the, sl- of the acronym. I'm pointing out that nobody's even trying to ask the obvious question. They're arguing who should be in or out without Mm -hmm. saying, how do you know? Well, on the basis of what? Says who? Well, one thing that seems to come to mind pretty obviously is that if you are, let's say, LGB, let's leave T out for a second, acting upon your orientation is considered societally normal within the bounds of what we consider ethic and ethical and fine um, it wasn't always that way but it is currently at this particular state of time so to me it's pretty easy to see why l g and b clearly belong in the acronym as something that a person might say you know i'm proud to be part of this group acting on the p is not legal and it is not societally acceptable so to me that seems like a really big distinction popularity contest you could call it that but we're also talking about both legal and moral implications i guess kink well i i don't know if i think kink should be in the acronym in and of itself so i'm probably more of a just like a an There's LGBT. a whole BDSM rights right. movement, flags yeah. of their own. They got floats in the parade. <clears throat> now, I'm not saying I have the answer to who belongs in or out or what, you know, objecti- uh, what the objective criteria should be. I'm just pointing out that so far we're treating this as a popularity contest, which to me is hypocritical. Um, we're there because we lost the popularity contest and so we need to band together. Some of us are just lucky that we actually get to engage in whatever our interest is in the real world. Not everybody is so lucky. For some people, again, pick your numbers. Regular everyday het guy, he gets to pick from 50% roughly of the population in theory. Gay guy gets to pick from roughly 2%. And down the line and down the line to people who have fantasies that cannot be enacted because of physical limitations and physics. Uh, Okay, their lives, you know, they have some interest pattern that has to be limited to their fantasy. Does it matter if it's for ethical reasons versus physics reasons? Do we, you know, these are people who grow up with, oh my God, what's wrong with me? And then they need help. 
They know they can't act it out in society. So we're going to say, sorry, therefore, we won't cover this. We won't cover psychotherapy for this. Nope, sorry, we won't band together and say, yeah, we know it's tough that you have to cover this, but you're not alone. Sorry. What do you think? You're going to have to do this alone? What do you think we should do with, um, let's say, a paedophile who is has been tested as such or who, who is a self-admitted paedophile but hasn't committed crimes. What what should we do? And even those who have committed crimes, what is where do we yeah, go? Yeah, is with there it? research about how to effectively ensure that individuals with those proclivities don't act out? What do we know about that? The all excellent questions. Now, of course, we only have limited ways to be able to ask these questions because mm-hmm. we can't, you know, right, do a survey of the typical pedophile, follow them up for 10 years and see how many offended. You know, it's, we just can't do that kind of research. The windows through which, you know, we can peek are you know, the statistics and the forensic statistics that we have, uh, 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 that we have. Uh, but the best project in the world actually is in Germany. Uh, it started with a, it's called the Prevention Project Dunkelfeld. Uh, Dunkelfeld is a German word that they invented, which just means dark field, essentially the, uh, the underground. The nature of the uh, uh, psychotherapy confidentiality laws and the, excuse me, mandatory reporting laws in Germany are such that if somebody uh, 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 here in the, uh, I'm in Canada, it's, uh, the U.S. is the uh, is the same way. Uh, if I discover or if a client of mine tells me that he's abusing one of his kids, I of course have to report that to the authorities in order to protect that kid from any more abuse. In Germany, patient confidentiality is higher than that. If that were said in Germany, the psychologist, the mental health provider, is not required. To, uh, to report it. That, as a side effect, enables people who want help oh, yeah. stopping what they're doing to come in and say, Doc, this is a compulsion. Doc, I need. Doc, I tried, but... So now we have those people who are available for study and interview and question, and what can we learn from them and follow them up? So as I say, it's a, so it is an exquisite and very, very important window that can guide us in other jurisdictions to, right, now have an alternative that's meant to prevent rather than just, in, uh, in theory, here we think we're actually preventing by, uh, uh, by mandatory reporting. Well, no, I want to just say, as a mandatory yep. reporter, yep. we're saving the child who's being abused. In no, that you're case. not. No, you're not. How? You're preventing the person from telling you that he's committing the abuse in the first place. We have mandatory reporting, but we also have informed consent, in which we are required to tell them at the beginning of therapy, these are the things that I would have to report. It says child abuse. So okay. he knows. Telling you is telling the authority. So it just doesn't tell you. We do not save anyone. But I'm wondering, okay, let's say a child... I'm kind of curious about this German system. It so- does, however, make us feel better and feel li- feel like we did. But all we've done is shove the problem away to where we can't see it and congratulate o- ourselves on our virtue. 
All we've done is participate in burying a problem. If we didn't have this law, the person would be able to come into therapy, would be able to, uh, uh, to tell me, and at least I have a chance of helping them. Mandatory reporting just makes us feel good. It doesn't stop the victim. But but I'm thinking about cases where... How would this work in, in the German system? Let's say a child reports that they're being abused. I know it's not the, the, the perpetrator saying, hey, I've been doing this bad thing and I want to tell you. If a child reports, what happens at that point? Uh, oh, exactly the same thing. Or if a uh, neighbor discovered it, mm-hmm. uh, uh, then absolutely. Their regular, their version of their child protection services would kick in I just see. like uh, okay. uh, the rest of us. The, the only thing that's different uh, is in their system, mandatory, the, the mandatory reporting has a different priority with uh, doctor-patient confidentiality. Uh, uh, in effect, do the therapists, do they ultimately tend to report after some time if they find that the the, the, the the client just is continuing to abuse like I would imagine they can't that would be a violation of client doctor patient uh, uh, doctor patient confidentiality Whoa. Oh my gosh. And are you saying the results are good in Germany? Right. Now, I, I, hang on, hang mm-hmm, on, hang on. Mm-hmm. Uh, your reaction, perfectly, perfectly natural. Mm-hmm. And everybody listening to this is going to have exactly the same reaction. That reaction is, of course, oh my God, right. Somebody told me this an hour, now out. Natural reflex. What do I do? How am I going to sleep tonight knowing that this is going to... Natural, natural reactions. And right, it is a tough position to be in. So right, we well, kind of want to write report in order to protect the kid. Caution number one: we're now doing it out of our own emotions. Well, in fairness, we I did. We want to that 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 that. We want to do it because it will make us feel better. Number two: what if we do report it? What if we say we will absorb whatever the legal ramifications are? And I do call okay, and the kid is saved, and I stop this one case. What happens now? The day after that. Every other pedophile seeing every other client in the country leaves. And all of a sudden, nobody's saying anything. You think you've saved the one, but actually you have harmed all of the other cases, plus all of the ones in the future, because now they won't go in and tell anyone. I know that, but what I... It just made you feel better. Well, in fairness, I did immediately ask... Um, what are the results of this German project? How do we know it's so good? How do we know that this system is so great? I'm open to it being so great, but I was like, well, then, yeah. what are your results, though? Yeah, it, 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 excellent, excellent questions. And it's, again, part of this is going to be answerable, part of this is not. We have this unusual window, or exceptional window, I should say, because they have this, uh, uh, this different structure. But we still have the big dark field and we don't know how big that field is. We don't know what the denominator is. So even though we'd see, okay, these number of cases, of the cases who come in, this is what happens. All right, that's, you know, here where the lights are on, where we can see it. But how many people would have come in otherwise? Again, is that great big, there's just no way to know it. What we do know, in practice... The, of the people who do come into the uh, 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 therapy systems, uh, 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 the prevention, Dunkel, uh, Pre- uh, prevention Project Dunkelfeld in Germany, again, the ones come in very, very unusual, a small handful actively, uh, actually yeah, engaging imagine. in or saying that they're engaging in hands-on offenses. A large chunk of them are engaged in child porn of various forms. 
Now, again, I, it, it's people automatically, the, people hear the phrase child porn and people, you know, again, it's emotionally evocative. People instinctively think of the worst possible case, which is photographic evidence of a kid getting hurt. Correct. And again, for what that's going on, we need to treat, that's the kind that we need to treat with the full weight of the law. The great majority of these, I'll now use a more nebulous term, materials are fiction, drawings, photoshopped images. Oh, no. you know, there is no kid getting hurt. Mm. We're now back into fantasy stuff. All right. Who were we helping by banning this? Uh, right, and now we're starting to get back on the we're banning it because it makes us uncomfortable. I, I have to ask you about two things now because I know people are yeah. going to say you're destigmatizing things with this sort of approach and also you're legitimizing these these issues with this sort of approach. Um, Because I don't know what normal is and I'm not... Uh, and uh, growing up gay kind of at this point made me, I'll say, immune to stigma. I always have difficulty processing uh, either one of those. But usually th those are uh, people are usually making an implicit uh, um, uh, have a couple of implicit assumptions uh, to say that uh, uh, that I'm destigmatizing anything. That that's not exactly true. I, I, it's, I, I think it's much uh, fairer, more accurate. I'll go with precise, to say that I'm fine-tuning what it is that's getting the stigma. Really, the underlying message, and of course I say it over and over again, it's often the first sentence in you know, any essay I write on the topic, is to separate, again, pedophilia, the sexual attraction pattern that they didn't pick and can't change, from the actual abuse and harm of another person, the actual child mm -hmm. molestation. So I'm not saying destigmatize, you know, the actual harmful crime. I'm just pointing out that the stigma belongs to the crime, not the fantasy. What's the point of stigmatizing something that they didn't pick and can't change? So it's not so when people I'll make air quotes, accuse me of destigmatizing pedophilia, you know, they're saying the word pedophilia, but really they're thinking child molestation. I'm not. I'm pointing out that the stigma belongs to the part that's harmful. The part that's harmful is the overt behavior, not the fantasy. And I am pointing out that if we stopped stigmatizing the fantasy, then we might be able to decrease the prevalence of the actual behavior. And what about legitimizing the, the, the position of the pedophile. I have no but, idea what legitimate Well, means. I suppose... <laughs> <laughs> legitimate to who? Legitimate well, well I'll tell you exactly what, what I'm thinking of. Uh, as far as yeah. I know, you were on the board or the advisory council or something of the Prostasia Foundation. And I don't know what the Prostasia Foundation, you know, seeks to do. I know that yep. a lot of people believe it is just effectively a front for more nef nefarious kind of mission. And yeah. uh, I, I would think... Okay, well, if you're going to join a, a foundation that is legitimizing paedophilia, for example, and I don't know if it is, but other people think it is. So, yeah, uh, I wonder what you say to that. The, uh, well, uh, it's exactly the other way around. Uh, now, uh, once uh, when I started doing this kind of research and this solid evidence demonstrating that this is a, uh, that this is a brain phenomenon uh, uh, that was coming out, the... 
again, to the professionals, this had a very logical implication. All right, given that they didn't pick it and it can't change, the only thing we can do is help people, you know, maximize the skills for managing it. Okay. And, you know, I was the first scientist doing it. I, I, it's, I'm known for being a good speaker, so I was in the perfect, you know, place to be able to get this idea, uh, get this idea across. Uh, uh, now, I, I was also a leader. I was editor-in-chief of the journal Sexual Abuse, you know, so I was about as legitimate a scientist. You know, I was the head of the peer review process in my field. You know, I was the definition of this guy knows good science of all kinds. Uh, so uh, my saying it again got people to much more substantially rethink how we did therapy and what kind of policies were in place. Again, now we're going back 15, uh, 15 years-ish. That now, again, uh, uh, among professionals has become the standard thinking. What we need to do is help these people manage whatever situations it is uh, that they're in. Uh, as time went by, now professional groups have formed themselves exactly around this, exactly around the, uh, 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 the, 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 the punitive, after-the-fact thing. We can do better than that. We have an opportunity now for prevention. And so you know, to prevent, you know, uh, most of the system is about vengeance, or, you know, which we <laughs> euphemistic, euphemistically called justice often. Uh, but it's still after the fact, after there's a kid harmed, after there's a victim where, as I say, my real goal or the goal of these professionals, if we can get through before there's a victim, now we're talking. So these groups started forming for, uh, uh, groups of professionals saying, you know, we know what the reporting guidelines are and we're here to help here are the limitations and research groups, you know, including these professionals are uh, also starting uh, uh, to form throughout the U.S. here uh, uh, and here in Canada. Uh, I would have to look in the U.K. I can't say that one comes to mind automatically. Uh how, however, there do also exist, you know, groups of unethical pedophiles, you know, trading unethical porn, you know, in the dark web. They also exist. Uh, but because I had a position where my word, my being a part of anything kind of a, a demonstrated the scientific legitimacy of a group, I became either a patron or a member of uh, the board of directors of, you know, the legitimate groups who really were trying to do genuine good. Uh, and the Prostatia organization is one of those. They are trying to enable situations that help pedophiles come in to, uh, to ask for help and for the various uh, 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 whatever initiatives in the various jurisdictions to enact genuine prevention projects, not just, as I say, this reflexive, vengeful after the fact that just <laughs> doesn't really in a foreseeable way reduce very many, uh, uh, very many, uh, very many crimes. Uh, and so I was a member of a lot of these, again, to help them distinguish which ones were, uh, were legitimate from not. Uh, the, I'll say accusations, the, the, uh, now, there exist people who are, you know, highly emotional, really reflexive, or they're working out their own histories of abuse, you know, which is no easy task. There's no evidence to suggest any untoward basis of anything having to do with prostatia. It's just, oh my God, if you're supporting pedophiles, you must be a pedophile. 
I get called a pedophile all the time. And or just or be, a you know, pedophile, to, you're somebody who's trying to legitimize and platform. And sympathizer, support. kind of. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. If you don't agree 100% with my radical view, then you must therefore be 100% of the opposite radical view. The idea that there that there's a complicated middle ground and it depends in its context and different people need different things. With a level of emotionality, it's really tough for people to, as I say, once the four Fs, fight or flee, once that's engaged, the upper brain stuff is pretty hard. And so it's just kind of kind but, of that. If you're not, you know, saying how evil the, if you're not talking about, you know, pushing these people into wood chippers, you must be one of them. I know, and I, I hear you, but I mean, this is something that I personally struggle with, with some of the highly research-based clinicians and, and professionals and academics. It's like, I think our emotions are also a really important alarm bell. And so I wouldn't want to dismiss people who do make emotional arguments because there's something really important there to listening to. Like if on an instinctive level, something comes off as being really uh, threatening or like egregious to a large chunk of people, there's something important about that that can perhaps guide us on, you know, how we should be approaching these topics or how we should think about them. And I know that's not a very um, kind of evidence-based way to talk about it, but it is a very human reaction that there are certain mm. things that, that has we served just, us well. We know it's a slippery kind of slope. And I know that changes too over time and in different cultures, but I do feel like there's something really important mm. to that. Yeah. Oh, you're, you're absolutely, uh, absolutely positively uh, correct. Uh, now, uh, it's kind of funny, despite, you know, and I, this is one of, you know, many controversial topics that, mm-hmm. that I study, mm-hmm. you know, for me, that's... that's I know, uh, I wish we had other more people. time to listen to all these other interesting things, but go on, yes. It, it, uh, to other people, you know, they stay away from these flames. To me, this is just, you know, a nice little sauna heat, you know, this is a spa day for me. Uh, now, uh, again, even though I'm involved in these controversy, it, it very many of these controversies, I myself have never been controversial. I just study controversial shit, so mm-hmm. no matter what I say, large numbers of people are going to be unhappy about it. Uh, my point of view, and again, it I can't say that it doesn't come back to this is how I grew up. Large groups of people were really upset that I was gay. Mm. So when large numbers of people are upset with something I think, fuck them. I don't mm-hmm. care. I learned to be immune to this a long time ago. I'm following what the evidence says. This is what the evidence says. And if everybody else wants to think the world is flat, that's not my problem. Okay. I'm the scientist. Here's where the evidence is, period. You were... What? You... Two. <laughs> Two. Oddly, despite that, you know, one can hardly say my name without the word controversy yeah. appearing in one of the next two or three Google hits, I am probably one of the least controversial people speaking on this issue. Uh, uh, For comparison, Alan Walker. Tell us, who's Uh, Alan Walker? uh, uh, Alan Walker recently wrote a book saying essentially very much what uh, what I just did and how we, you know, can in a reasonable way integrate people born with sexual attractions to children and how we can integrate them in a healthy way in society that 
as best as we can tell, decreases the potential risk of harm for children. Controversy, 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 essentially booted out of his uh, uh, research position at, I don't remember the university where he was. Uh, a Columbia uh, uh, University professor in the 1990s pointed out that not every victim of childhood sexual abuse is automatically harmed by it. That statement resurfaced recently. He's now, uh, uh, he's now out. So, and so on and so on and so yeah. on. Zucker uh, 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 getting uh, uh, fired from Cam H. And so, I've never been through any. That never happens. I, I have never been involved in anything more controversial than, <laughs> right, an unpopular, unpopular, a controversial tweet that people retweet, you know, taking it out of, out, out of context. So oddly, out of the people who are talking about, you know, these highly controversial and highly uh, uh, evocative topics, I kind of, again, because I've been at it this long, I've been talking about you know, more of these topics than other people, and and I somehow came out okay. I'm wondering if I'm the one who got this the right way, and if it's the radicals who got a... If there's a way for me to approach these people from anything from tweet to blog to, you know, whole documentaries, you know, reenacting my research program, if there's a method to communicate that I haven't tried yet, I'm open to hearing it. But if it's me versus the masses, I'm with the evidence. I don't care what the okay. masses say. It's up to the masses to listen to the scientist. Don't look up. You you say you have the evidence. And we've been talking for yeah. an hour, over an hour here. And there is one other thing I want to talk about. But I still haven't heard you tell me the evidence that's, mm. that somebody is, is born with pedophilia. Yeah. Well, is that the question? Because I'm trying to figure out, because we're talking about so many things oh God, with yeah. so many implications. Yeah. I per- personally, I don't, I, I'm going to get, I don't think it's that shocking that some people have innate proclivities that they don't, that don't fit into the normal society. I, I don't find that to be particularly controversial. Oh, uh, no, I think, no, what do, do we I, do about it is really tricky, but... Yeah, I guess. What is the evidence? Yeah, I just haven't heard the famous evidence. Oh, legit, legit. A legit, legit question. Uh, and as I say, there have been whole documentary films, you know, kind of reenacting okay. uh, 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 the research. It, it, it's none of this is uh, at all a secret. Okay. Uh, now, the bigger question again, for a non-brain scientist, you know, all of this is, you know, part of the big question: how do we how do we solve the nature nurture problem? Clunk. And that's true, right, you know, for gay stuff that, I'll say, set the modern precedence because so much depended uh, uh, on it uh, in its days. Uh, now, the way it worked uh, uh, the way it worked out with pedophilia is, you know, what phenomenon, what features of human behavior is it that we could measure that would give us a clue to brain structure? But, of course, the, peop- the people available to me were primarily offenders, you know, mm-hmm. diagnosed mm-hmm. formally as pedophiles mm-hmm. now in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, and I'm trying to figure out what happened before they were born. Mm-hmm. Right, that's a tall scientific mm-hmm. question. The uh, early studies, as I say, the first studies, you know, was Ray Blanchard's idea, essentially just measuring IQ, which is, you know, you can think about that as like the blood pressure of the brain. It's just a basic overall, how healthy is this brain? Again, 
won't tell me much about one specific person, although it was very useful, you know, for getting the right person into the right kinds of therapy. Uh, uh, but when I start, like I was saying before, when I start comparing whole groups, I now get to see patterns that aren't apparent when I'm looking to an individual person. For example, uh, it, uh, uh, it wasn't merely that, uh, 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 that these sex offenders against children had lower IQs than offenders, uh, uh, than average. Mm-hmm. It was, it was even lower than offenders against adults. Mm. And there was a direct correlation. The younger of the kids they offended against, the lower the IQ. Whoa. Right. All of us. Yeah, right. All of a sudden there's a pattern here and it's not so easily explained by. Right. Why would there be Mm -hmm. a phenomenal pattern between somebody who offends against an eight year old versus a 12 year old? Mm -hmm. What what about I saw height. You had height as one of the criteria, you noticed that was shorter. Because, of course, you know, it's uh, 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 when I'm interviewing, you know, every different thing I can think of about uh, about a pedophile, I'm looking for evidence of how healthy this person was during development. Mm -hmm. And physical height is one of those things Mm -hmm. because it doesn't change over the course. Uh, It doesn't change in adulthood, you know, until Mm -hmm. uh, until we get old. Uh, so height was one of the things that would tell me, again, in an individual person, it doesn't tell me a thing. But when I start seeing, again, another example of this direct relationship, now it says, okay, during development, including prenatal, but also during childhood, nutrition, stress effects, but it's, but it's not something that changes in adulthood. So for example, uh, there was a legitimate question. All the people available to me committed a crime and were in jail. And they only came to me as they're being released and uh, onto parole and probation. That's when they came to our uh, our facility. So arguably uh, only, the uh, more, uh, for only the more stupid got caught and therefore there was less. <laughs> but you couldn't argue that only the short were getting caught. Again, we're now mm. seeing a pattern. And you couldn't argue, that you something couldn't argue sus- the, the, the graph either. Right. Exactly. Now, the, uh, 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 the I'll call it the smoking gun, was, again, most people didn't think of it, handedness. Oh, yeah. Left-handed versus right-handed. I I, and, it, so far as brain is concerned, ambidextrous goes with left-handed. The hand, your dominant hand, it goes to the opposite side right. of the brain. That's right. uh, by coincidence, I'm left-handed, so I'm probably right brain so dominant. Well. Where most men especially, uh, 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 for uh, most men, right hand dominant and left hemisphere dominant. Okay. Now, but, you know, so in the average uh, uh, population, you know, it's somewhere 10%-ish are non-right-handed. As I say, ambidextrous okay. goes, with, uh, goes with left-handed. But it was 30 and 35% of the pedophiles. Huh. Okay. Brain development, you know, hemispheric dominance is established in the first trimester of pregnancy. If these people are three times more likely to be non-right-handed than they should be, something was different about them. It had to be in the brain, and whatever chain of events that led to it, the first links of those chain, uh, the first links of that chain, have to have been present in the first trimester of development. 
There's just no other way to explain this pattern. Or people who are left-handed yeah. are more, in, which I am, are more likely to be right-brained and therefore perhaps more likely to act in a certain way that could end up that you are a paedophile in prison. Uh, it is indeed uh, uh, related to uh, uh, disinhibition and those kinds of things, but the, uh, the the percent difference in there is it's a tiny difference. As I say, if it's 10% in the mainstream population, then amongst the, uh, the antisocials and so on, it's like 13, 14%, not 30. Okay. So as I say, it's just... It's, there's just no other way. And, of course, if I'm wrong, I want to know it. I want to be the first one to... So I have thought of and looked into mm-hmm. every possible alternative explanation. There, of course, are, there will always be somebody else. You know, there's always okay. another possibility. But, right, you know, so it's basic science, basic scientific method. Find every alternative explanation and does... Neither I or... And now we're going on 20 years... No one else has come up with another way. Right, and I compared these people, not just to regular every day, I compared these people to people who committed other kinds of offenses. So I have, you know, criminal versus criminal. Mm. It's just that these criminals are also attracted to children. You know, whatever brain differences there are, you know, it's really hard to say it's because of criminality because my control mm-hmm, group mm-hmm. were criminals. It, do, it doesn't feel like a smoking gun. You've got you've got handedness, which is three. Uh, times. The smoking gun is what, uh, uh, right? So, but whatever is different, the first chain of it had to be prenatal. I it's I don't know. It, it's quite possible that, for example, the thing that uh, 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 that went different is whatever hormonal or protein and thing which leads to differences in uh, 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 laterality is the formal term and therefore handedness but you know some other thing further down the line is what gives rise to uh, to pedophilia all of that is perfectly perfectly possible did you guys test but the simplest explanation so far until we have evidence that makes us have to say something else the Right, principle of pars- uh, principle of, uh, uh, of parsimony. Again, basic, basic scientific method. The simplest explanation. They're born with it. It's innate. Right, a different pattern from homosexuality, which, as I say, mm-hmm. as I say, it's a different. And your big point, just different just pattern. to save you, is just because they have it doesn't mean they're acting on it. And to act on it, they have to have other traits. Just to, I'm just saying that for your own. You know. Correct. It, it it's right. It's this complicated web of interacting things but the simplest explanation so far is that they're born with it and the the social policy implications ethical implications are well if we can't change them we have to help them manage it any of us could have been born with this pattern it's just that it's so uncomfortable to imagine and we are so aware of the harm of the victims Mm. it's really hard to you know try to drum up the empathy for being born that way um, but as I say the goal of it if we can get comfortable with that one all of the other atypical sexualities become a relative piece of cake I know I have to go after this but I'm trying to remember I, I had heard this interview a couple of years ago with a woman with pedophilic proclivities which mm. was very unusual I guess statistically and she was talking yes. about well first of all she was hyper aware of how 
totally destructive it would be if she ever acted on her proclivities and so she never did but she was talking about what you said earlier which is when she was young she was attracted to other kids her age and then she kind of aged up but her attractions didn't change and it was remarkable first of all because i think honestly i had never actually looked into pedophilia very much and i think because this was a woman I felt a little bit less terrified and threatened to hear her out, I guess, if that makes yeah. sense. And listening yeah. to her talk about this was just absolutely remarkable. And I'll never forget that mm. conversation because she had her voice disguised and she, of course, didn't share her name. But she was hyper aware of how dangerous it would be if she, even for a moment, like allowed herself to think this is something I could do in real life or this would be okay, you know? And I think that consciousness about her experience is really what would separate somebody like that from someone who I think is dangerous and talks themselves into this fantasy that this is fine. Uh, And of course, it's the ones who do talk themselves into that are the ones that we see. They commit a crime. They're, you know, they're the ones getting caught. Those are the ones we see. But right. Majority, minority, tiny sliver. There's no way to know. There's an awful lot unknown, really, in this field. I know I saw a documentary myself different than Sasha's, but it was a man who, who it was a UK documentary. And he said, I have pedophilic tendencies and I have sought help and there is no help. What do I do? And he Mm -hmm. went and made a TV program, you know what I mean? So he was not committing the crime as such, but there was no crime. Yeah. He, he had thought crime and he wanted help for it. And are you saying yeah. that if you have, if you're listening to us and if you have pedophilic tendencies, you're saying that there is programs in Germany that could help you? Or even, even here. Yes. I mean, where are programs to help people here? Uh... Oh, goodness. I wish I had listed them so I could well, send, send them you can, to us. Yeah, send right. them to us. Oh, okay. We'll uh, yeah, I'll do that. There, the there, there's one started, there's one in Canada, and there's a, uh, one uh, uh, in uh, the US I have in mind. And again, I, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll okay. uh, send the details to you so anybody can And they can, actually can work. Because I thought recidivism in, in this is really, really high, and it doesn't work. That there's fixation. No, it's not. That, that's one of the myths. Actually, recidivism, recidivism is very low. Uh, it's, uh, once a person is apprehended, the very few of them go on to uh, commit another offense. As I say, it's, you know, somewhere in the 15%-ish range. Uh, the, the, I think a lot of the public confusion is because, you know, in the most, over the most recent generation, over the most recent 20 years, you know, there have been more and more uh, uncovered instances of these, uh, I can only call them string offenders, institutional offenders in churches, the Boy Scouts uh, yeah. and so on. Church. Where, but those are the, right, those are the ones who weren't caught. So as they were mm. not being caught, they were, right, they could string up large, large numbers, right. And so we have this, uh, right, so it, it, and those are the ones, right, that really grab at our heartstrings. Yeah. They're the most dramatic. So we have a, that slants the public view, mm-hmm. but recidiv- but once a person is caught, they uh, rarely even have the opportunity to do it. You know, they're never in contact with an, with another child. And, yeah. you know, as I said, that that's... Or they've learned their lesson, or they've been in therapy. Take okay. your pick. But recidivism is much lower for those crimes than just about any uh, uh, any other. I'm so definitely going to check that out. But I believe yeah, you. Yeah, if you, you will send us 
those resources. I would love, I'd love to, to see them. I would love and to have them. And of course, them. we'll we'll also include resources for anybody who is a survivor of abuse. This is a very very difficult topic, and we're we're really grateful to have had you on and to kind of talk through these issues together. And um, I think it's very important to bring all of this into the light so we can see it with more clarity. It's uh, uh, it's. Fa- it- it's a fascinating field, I say, you know, in my objective best. But you're right, it's it's a really, really tough topic because it exactly because it's so tough to be objective about it. You know, most people come to this topic through right, the most heinous of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Right. It's easy for me to say, you know, don't be emotional. This hasn't touched me in a personal kind of way. You know, I I it's I'm set up to be objective uh, about it. Uh, but uh, as I say, the the value in it is if we can grapple our discomfort on this one, we can grapple our discomfort on uh, uh, on any of them. And uh, the lesson, although we didn't get, I'm, I'm surprised we didn't get to talk more about uh, 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 gender issues. Uh, so am I. Uh, but uh, uh, but it's a similar kind of story. It's a just stand up regardless of what the numbers are, who likes it, who doesn't like it. And it's very strange. When I was young, I was getting attacked from the right for what I said about trans issues. What I've said hasn't really changed much, but now I get attacked. Okay. Well, I, I, I should say from the other we side. We really have to finish on this question. But do you think, therefore, being uh, you know a proclivity towards being trans is innate that you're born that way? Uh, it, uh, different people think that they are trans for different reasons. Some of them seem to have a stronger link to innateness Mm -hmm. than others. Mm -hmm. One of the big, maybe the biggest pattern I'll say going on in, uh, in a lot of the trans discussions is people are taking, you know, scientific findings, which were made very precisely with a very specific group of people. Then they use some very broad, very general terms, so it seems like it applies to people that it has nothing to do with, and then express that using the most extreme terms that they can think of, and now it just is saying the opposite of what the original study did. So this is one of those. So when people are saying trans, it used to mean people who actually wanted, you know, people who were transsexual, people who really were on the path to changing sex. Now it essentially just means anybody who likes some masculine stuff, some Mm -hmm. feminine stuff, which is pretty much everybody. Mm -hmm. And now it's just a fashion label. So is it innate? What we used to think of as, you know, the actual transsexuals. Yeah, we have evidence that that's pretty close to... uh, 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 innate in different ways and again the story is a little bit more complex but this you know relative you know the the recent explosion of everybody calling themselves trans there's no evidence to suggest that they are you know uh, experiencing the same phenomenon that the full-blown if i can call them that transsexuals are well i'll put to you dr Cantor. listen to our episode with paul vassi it's really interesting because we get into this question of innateness i'm sure you know paul I, I, oh yeah, you know we we, we go way back. I, uh, I listened to your episode uh, uh, with Ken Zucker, which uh, uh, I enjoyed, and I'm halfway now through listening with uh, uh, Steve. Oh, yeah. oh, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and speaking with us about this. It's been really. I mean, I've been glued to the edge of my seat really the whole time. So Me too. It's very interesting. Oh, thank you. Delighted. It's uh, as I've often said. I don't know why everybody isn't a sex researcher. <laughs> I'm glad not everyone is. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, one way or another, I sometimes wonder if we are. <laughs> okay, thank you. My pleasure. 
Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media. Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.